My name is Todd. I'm the lead pastor here. I know I don't know all of you, and uh, if you're new here to Cornerstone today, we're, we are really thankful that you're here to worship with us. And what we're doing is we're studying through the book of Romans. And so if you have a Bible, open your Bible. If uh, you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to be able to give you a Bible. There'll be some people walking down the aisles here in just a little bit with a Bible. You can raise your hand, and we'll get it to you. And, and let me just say this. Um, if you're even somebody that's not a believer, that doesn't know Jesus, I'll just put it to you that way. Um, all of us started there, and I'll still never forget the first time we walked into a church, and they said, you know, kind of open your Bibles to the book of Romans, and I'm like, where in the world is that? Um, the beauty is there's an index in the front you can go to, but then you can even maybe look at somebody next to you, you can say, hey, show me where the book of Romans is, and they'd be happy to show you so you can follow along. We really want you to see what we, what we try to do is we try to teach the Bible. We're not trying to teach Todd or Cornerstone we believe that the Bible truly is God's word, that it's inspired, that he, he has given it to us so that we might not only know him and love him and follow him, but that we might be the men and the women that he's created us to be. And so if you need a Bible and you don't have one, uh, it's our gift to you. you. You take it, steal it, go for it. You take it home with you and what we're going to go. But what we've been doing in the book of Romans is we've been trying to walk through, especially those first four chapters. Now, when Paul wrote this particular letter, it wasn't written by chapters. There weren't chapters in there, but this section we know is chapters one through four. He finished it, and then last week we started kicking off chapter five, which in a lot of ways, chapter five, what it is, is it's kind of, and this is the way I'd put it, it's like your first real breath of fresh air after he's told us how sinful people are and, and, and the need of a, of, a, of a savior, Jesus, to be able to right the world. But we're really trying to focus in in the book of Romans on this idea of you're gonna see it either as maybe justification or righteous or righteousness, but this idea of God writing the world. You're gonna really catch this in the book of Romans. Our God is currently and will one day permanently write the world. Everything that humanity knows is messed up and needs to be fixed. Our God is doing that, including not only on a global scale, but let me just say this, in us personally. I mean, when I look around in my own life, I realize I desperately need Jesus to write this life because I know that I battle every day and I struggle with sin and I struggle to be the man God's called me to be. I, I look at my home and I need God to, to write my home. I, I need God to write Cornerstone. In other words, we need Jesus in the work that he accomplished on the cross and his victory over death and his resurrection in the tomb this is really what Paul's talking about, is how is our God writing the world? Now, for just a second, what I want you to imagine is, I want you to go back into the world in which these people lived, because it's important for us to understand where the Romans were when they heard this letter for the first time. We know probably there was a lady named Phoebe who was handed the letter. She, she was the one that was supposed to take it from Corinth, where Paul was, to where it was gonna land into Rome. <coughs> Excuse me. And in taking it, she probably even had it memorized. And by the time she got there, she would have handed the letter to the leaders within the church. And then she would have begun to recite the letter to the people. Now, after finishing chapters one through four, here's what's so crucial. You had two key groups that Paul was writing to, Jews, those that came out of the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and had the people of God as far as, as the Mosaic law is concerned. You would have had that particular group of people and then you would have had the Gentiles which was kind of everybody else. 
Now the Jewish people, after hearing this particular letter being read, I think they would have got to the end of it, and I think they would have been a little shocked to hear this reality, at least in a little bit, that while the law was good, in other words, it showed the beauty of God, it showed the perfection of God, the heart of God in so many levels, and it showed the sinfulness of humanity, our desperate need of God, that particular work, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, the law was never intended to right the world. In fact, here's the way that Paul put it. He said, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. No human being will be righted in his sight. The law can't do that. Now, every Jewish person really did think that what the world needs is the, the law and the system of the law. If the world would just have that, that somehow the world would be righted. But Paul's whole point was, is that knowing God's grand plan, the law was never intended to right the world. Now, for the Gentile person that's sitting there, it would have been unique because they would have been thinking to themselves, I think, if the Jewish system of worship, if the Jewish system of government, if the Jewish system of society, if that couldn't right the world, if that was insufficient, as best of a system as it was, understand, the best system ever created is not the American system, it's not the Chinese system, it's not the European system of any kind. The greatest human system ever instituted by God was the system that he instituted with the Jewish people. If that couldn't work, then how in the world can it be righted? I mean, for the, the, the Gentile people, they would have lived in a world that had myriads of religions that Rome had come in and had begun to absorb into them and realized that they were inadequate to the task of writing the world. They had all kinds of philosophical systems. They had the philosophies of Aristotle and Socrates and Plato, these men that were greatly revered. Those systems couldn't write the world. They were never intended to. Whether they were kings or queens, whether they were emperors or senators, whether even in this you had kingdoms and republics, all of which we're going to learn later in a very cool way by the time we get to chapter 13, have been instituted by God, they might be able to restrain evil, but listen to me, they cannot right the world. I know every four years, whether it's the Democratic Party or the Republican Party tells you they are the party that can right the world. Let me just tell you that. They cannot right the world. I don't care if it's Bernie Sanders. I don't care if it's Joe Biden. I don't care if it's Donald Trump. They cannot right the world. This is what they would have been hearing in the back of their heads. We cannot do it. No Jewish system, no Gentile system, even in their best forms, all they could do is merely to point towards the greater, which at the end of it, the only way of righting the world is through the Messiah, through the Lord, King Jesus. There is no other way. That's why what we do as a church is so important. We're not just going through the motions of things coming in and singing some nice songs and hearing some nice messages and, and feeling good. We are the institution that God has left on this world to convey the greatest message ever of Jesus Christ. And it is the only answer to people's lives being righted and people coming into right relationship with God and then being the men and the women that God created them to be. We aren't just a church that goes through things on Sunday. We are the institution in which death and 
hell will never prevail against. We are the institution that has a message for the world that says King Jesus has come. He has died. He's been crucified. He's been buried. He rose again. He's at the right hand of the Father. And one day he is coming back and all things will be righted. We have a stinking great message. So when you hear everybody giving these political speeches, don't forget all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. All authority. And so therefore, as we are going through our lives, we are making disciples of the King, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded us. And lo, he is with us always to the very end of the age. This is what Paul is trying to get across to them. Now, the key here is, though, is it's exclusive. Only those who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our, 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 our justification, our writing, those are the only people that can be righted. It is an exclusive message. I understand that. It is a message that's difficult in a relativistic world, but listen to me. When Peter was preaching in Acts 4, he meant what he said when he said there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we might be saved. None. And that is so hard in a relativistic world, but there is one answer to the, the problems that we are facing in our world today, both on a small level and our grand level, and that is the only answer being King Jesus. Now, as we look at this today, what Paul's exploring, again, keep this in the back of your mind. He's exploring this idea of what does it mean to write things? The writing that's taken place specifically between God and human beings. Now, when we get to chapter eight, we're gonna realize God is also making things not only right between human beings, but he's making his creation right too, because we kind of know there's something not right with creation either. Now, with this, what Paul's now going to do, last week he talked about peace and he talked about grace, this, this atmosphere that we as disciples, followers of Jesus, were designed to live in. We're designed to live in that rightness, that shalom of God. We're designed to live in that grace, that never-ending, extending grace of God that he's given to us. That's the healthy atmosphere. And over and over, I keep saying to you that, that this idea of salvation is bigger than escape from hell but I do want to today begin to focus on, while it's bigger than that, there is going to come a day, according to Romans 2, 1 through 16, where every one of us will stand before God. We will give an account for who we are in our lives. We will give an account for our works. And let me just tell you something. To be found before that throne one day, not in Christ, should cause us all to shiver. Paul really wants to make sure we understand in this text that while this idea of the gospel is bigger than that day, it is not smaller than that day. Every one of us one day will stand before him. And in the meantime, as we begin to now walk through this, we are being transformed into the image of his son. And one day, 2 Corinthians 5.10, in being transformed in the image of his son, we will stand clothed in Christ, stand clothed as the people that he intends us to be. This is what we're doing. This is what we're calling people to. And so this was why Paul last week, the way we ended was adamant that we get this hope, that we get the idea that he does not want to put anyone to shame. Because God's love, and look at this, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, let me just finish this way. You sit in an amazingly privileged position, but the church is never called to bide its time while we wait for Jesus to return. We are called to be the men and the women that he intends us to be. And last week I used the idea of dancing and I asked us now to go dance. So I don't know how you danced this week, but this is what we, I think the text calls us to. Now, one of the key things about that idea, if you look up there, see down in verse five, it says this idea of poured. Now that word poured comes from an understanding, especially out of Isaiah 32, 15, in which he, 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 he's beckoning out to the people and talking about that one point his spirit would be poured out in love on the people. And he says in Isaiah 32, 15, that the wilderness would become this fruitful field. In other words, you will know my people because they will be fruitful. In Joel 2, 28 through 29, he says, when I pour out my spirit, the people will be young and old. The people will be of all kinds of different racial groups. The people will be rich and poor. In other words, his people were gonna flourish and they were gonna come from all kinds of different paths and backgrounds. And they were even gonna flourish, Romans 5, 3 through 4, in the midst of tribulation. Therefore, when we think about the idea of the promise of God writing the world, while it is more than escaping the fires of hell, it's not just a mere escapism. Again, it's not less than that. It's more than that. What we're gonna do today, though, is we are gonna look at this time where all of us have to think through when we stand before, that, before the throne of God and we don't want to experience wrath. Paul's already talked about it in Romans 1.18. He's been clear about it, that the wrath of God is being expressed in all kinds of different ways. But there will come a day, according to the book of Revelation, where those not in Christ will experience the fullness of God's wrath. And so that's really where I want to kind of talk today as we kind of expand this out a little bit. Now, where we finish in Romans 5, 1 through 5, if you look there, we finish with this, these two key words that are in there. Look down at 5, 1, or 5, 5 real quick with me, hope and love. And specifically, we're going to really narrow in on the idea of love today. <laughs> now, Romans 5, 1 through 8, just so you can kind of get this. You might even write yourself a note. Romans 5, 1 through 8, if you were to say what is kind of the main point from one point of view is that it's all about love and hope. Now, specifically in Jesus Christ, but it's the, the way I would put it is it's the solid, sure hope that all those who belong to God by faith in his work through Jesus are deeply loved. And because we are deeply loved, we can be assured of final salvation one day when we stand before the throne. Now, what this rescue will look like, Paul's not really going to tell us yet. He's going to get to that in Romans 8. But at the moment, what he wants his readers to know is that he's been, there's been this thought in the back of their head since 2, 1 through 16, when that final judgment day comes, will I be rescued? That's the question. Now, I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have wrestled with this question. Will I be saved on that day? Now, that question is so important because there's, there's, there's some important words that he's gonna bring out in six through 10. Now, now look at verse six. We see that we are in need of rescue because we're weak. If you look down in there, what that means to just be is we're powerless. We don't have the capacity to save ourselves. We're ungodly. We're the opposite of God. We're, we're sinners. We constantly rebel against God. And even by the time you get to verse 10, we see this word that we are enemies. 
Now, most people that I sit down to share Jesus with, if I walked up to them and they didn't know Jesus, and I said, oh, stinks to be an enemy of God. Man, how do you feel about being an enemy? They're gonna look at me most times and be like, what in the world are you talking about? But every single human being outside of Jesus Christ still sits in a place of weakness, ungodliness. They still sit in the place of sinners not in Christ and they're enemies. What does this mean? Now, this is really important to where we're going today. So listen closely. What this means is two things. One, it means that humanity is incapable of rescuing themselves on that day. If you are somebody that doesn't know Jesus, let me just say this. If you think somehow that if I stand before God and my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff, you are gonna be sorely disappointed when you stand before him one day. No one can save themselves in front of that holy and great God, no one. But here's the second thing. What that means is that God's love is totally and completely unmotivated by anything in us. This is huge because the reason this is important because this love means that it's not earned, it's unmerited, it's not dependent upon us. And so therefore, if God in his graciousness looks down and chooses to love us, even when we were unlovely, what that really means at the end of the day is that means it will never change. That's nuts. God's extravagant love and who he is as God loves us not because of anything wonderful about us, not because of anything great in us, not because of anything special in us that we've earned. He has just chosen to love us. And what that means is whether I have a good day or a bad day, I, it doesn't matter. My God, because I'm in Christ, always loves me. Now we can talk about that some ways, like on a parental kind of an idea, but I always joke with my kids, whenever we travel, we always put them on a, on a scale. We, we rank them one through four and we'll tell them, you know, you're number one today and we'll tell the other one, you're number four. <laughs> Everybody parents in their own way, don't judge. <laughs> God never does that. God just always fully loves us. And if he fully loves us when we're unlovable, what does that mean about loving us to the very end? He's not gonna quit. God's writing is, it works itself out in practice in different ways. We, whenever we think about this idea of how God saves us, we kind of have to look at God's past salvation of us, his present salvation of us, his, his future salvation of us. But in chapter two, because we learn that one day we will stand before God, the secrets of who we are will be laid out, we need to answer this question, how do I know or what is it that can be righted so that I can stand before him that day? Because again, if we don't answer that question, we're gonna be in a terrible position. And in 321 through 425, I love the fact that Paul has already begun to argue in great teal, and he's begun to lay it out that this good news about Jesus, they can be assured in the present that they're in Christ, they're one of God's cherished people, this group of people whose sins have been forgiven, who have now already received the verdict of you are right, and we can talk about that. And here's what he's about ready to do is to lay it out. So in light of that, let me just kind of say this. Let me just, we've kind of laid it out, this the extravagant love of God and how this love of God's gonna last all the way to the end. Let's wrestle with this a little bit by just asking two questions, okay? I'm gonna throw two questions out there. How does God know whether or not you, me, everyone else in here will actually make it to the end or not? That's, that's one of the questions I'll hear people ask a lot. 
And how can it be that, that people who still have a huge life left to live potentially, lives in which they could do all kinds of evil, lives in which they could sin, how is it that we're nevertheless given this assurance that the vinyl verdict already known, how can we know that? And I believe Romans 5 through 8 is here to answer this particular question. Now, I think the answer begins this way. I think the Christian has hope. We have hope in who Jesus is for the verdict that's issued in the present to be reaffirmed when we stand before God based firmly on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, he's gonna look in the past and he's gonna tell us, do you wanna know why I'm so confident of this? Because it's not based upon you, it's based upon the work of Jesus. Now the death of Messiah on our behalf was when we, and again, we were weak, we were ungodly, we were sinners, we were enemies. And I think that death demonstrated in a powerful way how much God loves us. And if he loves us that much, let me ask you this question. Can't he be trusted then to rescue us, verse nine, from that day? Can't he be trusted to rescue us from the wrath of God? Like if he loved us when we were unlovely, now imagine now that we are friends, and even by the time you get to chapter eight, you're not just a friend. Every one of you in here that know Jesus Christ, you're a child of the king. We are sons and daughters of the God most high. If he will rescue us when we were unlovely, this is Paul's whole argument, why in the world wouldn't he rescue us when he's, we're his very own children? Now with this, the idea is that after God did the unthinkable of sending his son to die for us while there was nothing whatever to commend in us, and I would say this, in fact, everything about us was revolting in who we are in many ways. When we were his enemies, verse 10, now that we're his friends, won't he save us? Now, here's where the argument kind of takes the form, and you kind of got to see this a little bit. You're going to see this idea of much more. If you look down in verse 9, does everybody see that in their text? Much more. Verse 10, he says, much more. Look at verse 11. He says, more than that. Now, what he's doing here is it, the rabbis called it an argument from heavy to light or light to heavy. That was kind of how they would see it. If, in other words, if God will do this, won't he do this? Or in Paul's case, right? Man, much more, much more, more than that. The idea is if God has done the difficult thing in sending his son to die, how much more likely is he then to complete the job by doing the easy bit of rescuing us? Force that Paul's trying to lay out in verse 10 and 9 through 10 is this very thing. If he's done the big thing, why won't he do the rest? In other words, I was thinking about it the other day. If my child was out in the street hurt and a car was bearing down upon her and I ran out there snatching and rolling and grabbing her in front of the car, getting away from danger, wouldn't I carry her inside and bandage her wounds? That's the greater to the lighter. The mom that's sitting there giving birth to a child, after she's gone that far and it's in the final moments before the child is born, the idea is that there's no way she would quit. This week as I was studying this through, I found an interesting story about a guy named Peter Miller who was in the Revolutionary War. And in fact, at first I thought it was a false story. And so I had to go research it and dig it until I found it actually within the documents within their county. They have this particular story. He was a man that was a pastor during the Revolutionary War. He had a guy that was living just a little ways away from him who was an innkeeper named Michael Whitman. 
Michael Whitman hated Peter Miller because Peter Miller was a pastor of a particular church in town, grew some convictions in which he could no longer shepherd inside of that denomination, so he became a part of another denomination and shepherded. And Michael Whitman hated him for that, not only hated him, but he began to totally cause problems within his church like no tomorrow. Now, one evening, Whitman, who was the innkeeper, didn't even realize it, but he was housing two American spies. He was a guy that was loyal to the crown. He was, he was one of those ones, <coughs> excuse me, that was, a, that was not only a loyalist to the crown, but he was never afraid to badmouth the crown. As he began to badmouth the crown and talk about the idea that the revolution, all these different ones should be hung and quartered for their, their going against the crown, these two spies stood up and looked at him and said, we are spies of actually George Washington. We're arresting you. They took him to George Washington. They stood before George Washington and they were sentenced to death because of treason in front of him. Hearing about this, Miller set out on foot. Now, the interesting part about this story is that it sounds like a story your dad used to tell you about how he used to walk to school. I walked barefoot, you know, backwards uphill, you know, barefooted. This guy was an older man who walked because he had to walk with a cane 60 miles in the snow. Now, again, it sounds like it, but it's according to what we've learned in the records. It was absolutely true. <clears throat> but he went to plead for the life of this man, Whitman. When he got there, General Washington began to listen to the story. And as he listened to the story, he appreciated how heartfelt it was. But he looked down at him and he said, there is no way, Mr. Miller, that I can pardon your friend. Well, Miller stood there and said, my friend? He's not my friend. In fact, he's my worst living enemy. What, said Washington? You've walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy that, in my judgment, he says, puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant your request. With pardon in hand, Miller rushed out of there. Now, again, when I think rushed, it was probably, you know, so off he went through the snow, but he rushed out after there because he wanted to save his neighbor from being executed. He had to then travel again, catch this, because I don't know why in this story. Why didn't George Washington give him a horse? I was like, I thought George was a cool guy. But he began to walk 30 miles to the place in which this guy was going to be facing the scaffold. As he arrived in there, he began to walk to the front with the pardon in hand. And as he got up there, Miller, who was the man who was the traitor, exclaimed, listen to this. This is what Miller said. There's old Peter. This is, excuse me. This is what uh, Whitman said. There's old Peter Miller. He's walked all the way from Ephratah, the town they're from, to have this revenge by watching me hang. Now, part of me would have been, all right. <laughs> I, don't know, I, I totally walked away. But think about this, heavier to lighter. If having done the hard part, putting his reputation on the line, his life on the line for the enemy, is he not going to finish the task of taking in front of them the pardon? This is Paul's whole point. But it's even grander because it's just a shadow of what Jesus did in this moment. That points to the amazing work of Jesus. But think about it. Christ not only obtained our, the enemy pardon, but he did it by dying himself to obtain the pardon. 
And in obtaining the pardon, it's no wonder that Paul says, if he will go that far, won't he go much more and much more and more than that? If you're ever wondering how much God loves you, he loves you all the way to the end. Neither height nor depth nor any other living thing will ever be able to separate you if you're a child of God from the love of God, period. And we as Christians have to believe that. If we don't believe that deep within our bones, then we might as well just shut down shop and call it quits. God loved us when we were unlovable. He loved us to the fullest extent. And I promise you, if you know Jesus Christ and you've come to know him through faith, you have bent the knee to him. You have trusted in him. You've made that allegiance to him as the king. When you stand before him one day, you will stand looking into the eyes of a father who loves you, not because of anything in you, but because of the amazing work of Jesus Christ, period. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, you do not want to be there one day outside of Jesus. Paul says, that's how much he loves us. Now, I think in some ways we could just quit and go, great, that's awesome. But then he gives us 9, 10, and 11. What's so cool about this, and the word that we're going to kind of need to just look at real quick to understand this, is the word reconciliation. Now, most times when we've heard about this word, we've talked about, you know, you used to be an enemy, now you're at peace with God. We talk about it in legal terms, about how God, in his graciousness, there was a reconciliation which Christ now bore your enmity so that you can now be with, restored to union with him, 2 Corinthians 5.19. But again, we have to go back into the world in which they were living in to kind of help us understand what was going on at the time. Well, people at this time, they were so careful about maintaining their relationships because in an honor-shame culture, that's what they lived in, their relationships were everything, especially relationships with authorities. And if you ever violated that relationship with authorities, you were deserved the wrath of the authority that would to be able to come to you, which is what we find in 5.9. We are owed the wrath of God because we have violated this relationship. Now, in it, what he's going to do, though, and here's what's so incredible, and this is what's found in, excuse me, in verse 10, is this idea of we were reconciled to God, look at this, by the death of his son. Three times he emphasizes reconciled, reconciled, reconciliation. Not to mention, he shows us how he goes about accomplishing it. But in ancient cultures, what's so important is, and it's even in cultures today, a guy named Jackson Wu, I've loved reading his stuff on this, is he talked about the idea that in, in these particular cultures, sons carry the family name, and so they're, they're valued above all other relationships because in the back of a man's head is that the name that's going to keep, or the one that's going to keep my name going on and on is through this son. This is the idea. And in fact, to ever put your son, your name, on the line is considered a shameful thing to do. But what did God do? He put his son on the line. He bore our shame. He put the family name on the line by putting him out there. And now in placing him out there, everyone would have understand that, that man, he put the family line on the name. Who would do that? Here's the answer. The one that adores and loves you completely. Because God hasn't just intended to have one son or 
one child. As we read through the rest of the book of Romans, he intends to have a family of adopted children. But in order to adopt them, Jesus had to die to reconcile, to bring us to God. And in bringing us to God, now how do we make much of God? Here's the word we use. We rejoice, we boast. And I was thinking about it the other day. I've always told my kids this statement. Don't brag. Anybody else learn that? Don't brag. Here's what Paul is actually telling us to do. Christians brag. Brag. God rescuing us and making us of his own and making us his own, the expectation of the Father now is that we brag. It's called evangelism, by the way. In fact, I think one of the main reasons that we don't evangelize like we ought to is because we don't understand what I just preached like we need to. If we understood how amazing it is to be loved by the God of the universe, holy and completely, even when we were unlovable, to the very end and the extent to which he put the family name on the line in now sending his son to die, buried, and rose again to conquer death. If we fully grasped that and understood that, we would brag like we do when we get some stupid new car that we like for the first year or so. We would brag about our favorite sports team. We would brag like we do so many silly things. I mean, seriously, I'll promise you, if the Steelers were still in the playoffs, I'd be wearing a Pittsburgh Steelers jersey right now in front of all of you. But, my... but that's another story for another day. We brag. In this discipleship thing we're talking about, we need to learn to be braggers. Parents, teach your children actually to be right braggers, not of themselves. There's no boasting in ourselves. There's no boasting in our kings or our queens or our presidents. There's no boasting in our stupid cars and our stupid, you know, football teams, even as amazing as the Steelers might be. There is no boasting in those things. But teach your kids to boast about Jesus. And in fact, I would say this, fuel the fire so greatly that you boast about Jesus. Everyone that you come into contact with, just be boasters of Jesus. Man, before I was a follower of Jesus, my grandma, I didn't realize this, she was a boaster. Not of herself, but she was a boaster of Jesus. And it used to drive me crazy. We'd be sitting there in a restaurant, the lady would, you know, come up and say like, you know, hey, you know, what would you like to order? And my grandma would order. And then she'd be like, hey, after your shift is over, I would love to talk to you about something way more important than our food. Is that Okay. I'd sit in there like, oh. <laughs> and we would wait around. She'd always say, when's your shift over? Two hours, three hours. But grandma, if she would let her, my grandma was just a bragger. She loved to brag about Jesus. Why? I'll never forget this. Right before she died, I'd come to know Jesus. And she looked at me and she put her hands on my face right after, at, at, kind of after finding out I'd come to know Jesus. She's put her hands on my face. And I'll still forget this. She goes, Todd, I knew eventually you'd see the goodness of Jesus. <laughs> she bragged because she knew the goodness of Jesus. And so in the name of the Father, who loves you 
completely. In the name of the Son who validated that love by going to the cross, by dying, being buried, and rising again, and returning one day to make all things right. And in the name of the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians, who reminds you over and over that you are a son of God if you've truly bent the knee to King Jesus. May you go this week and experience the greatness of the love of Jesus as you look at God's word and cornerstone. Go brag. Go be braggers. Isn't that weird? It's almost like I can't. Yes! Go brag as much as you can about Jesus. Don't be weird. Don't be like, you know. Don't be angry. Out of the goodness of Jesus, Cornerstone, may you brag the name of Jesus like you've never bragged his name before. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.